because one of the backup vocalists yeah. doesn't realize it. it goes, get it on. It's yeah. <laughs> my favorite part of the song. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and musicians get together to dissect and complain about a random album from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to give a bunch of background on the artist. We're going to talk through a series of specific tracks, play a bunch of clips, so don't worry if you haven't heard the record in a while. And at the end of all that, we are going to vote on whether or not you really need to hear this record before you die. This week, we've been listening to T-Rex's Electric Warrior. Very excited to get into that, to hear from everybody that's here in the studio to talk about T-Rex today, and to play some clips for you and to get into the tweet-length reviews. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rob. I've been complaining since I was 12. And now, I'd love to play you a clip of the biggest hit on this T-Rex record. It is called, Bang a Gong, parentheses, Get It On. you have a sense of where we've been at, what we've been listening to, and by way of introductions, I'd love to kick things right off, send it around the room, get some tweet-length reviews of T-Rex's Electric Warrior. We're going to throw it first over to Tom. Before I get into the tweet-length review, I just, I want to talk to your family and see if 12 is an accurate age for when you started complaining. I'm going to guess it was a lot earlier than that. But, you know, here is my tweet-length review of T-Rex's Electric Warrior. Middling bass work, low effort drums, barely sensical lyrics about having sex with cars delivered by a coked out pervert. If these things sound appealing to you, you should give this record a chance. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Excited to get into it. Let's pass it right along to Marty. All right. Here we go. A T Rex is a large dinosaur. Mark Bolin is a small hippie. Electric Ladyland is an album by Jimi Hendrix. Romantic Warrior is an album by Weather Report. Electric Warrior is a T-Rex album, and it's just as good as those other two. I'm not really sure how to how to interpret that, <laughs> but okay. All right, we're gonna we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into that. First of all, I think he's a mod, not a hippie, to be clear. But these these UK distinctions are challenging for us Americans. Clearly, let's hear from Phil. Yeah, I uh, my my tweet length review isn't quite as concise, but it it really feels like uh, here T Rex has taken the David Bowie aesthetic really seriously, right? This feels like real downstream David Bowie, including the cocaine use, right? They see it as an essential part of the creative process. 
Okay, and this is Rob here, and my tweet-length review. For appreciators of nonsensical slam poetry from a drug-addled fame monster, and also hand claps blended into snare drum hits, Electric Warrior sees the original king of glam lay down a timelessly cool, if surprisingly reserved, rock and roll classic. Okay, I want to start the conversation right off the bat. We're going to get into some background of T-Rex, but first, I would love to hear how everyone's week went. What are your guys' general impressions of Electric War? Give it to me. You know, I've listened to this album a bunch in my life, but I had never given it the close examination. And it was, at, on close examination, a lot different than it was on passive listening. And I will say that... I don't think it held up as well as I was thinking it was going to hold up. I kind of thought Mark Bolin was a guitar god, and that very much was not in evidence on this album. And I think part of the reason I think he's a guitar god is just the picture on the cover of the album of him with that guitar in front of the stack. Oh it my looks god. it looks amazing. But I was expecting shredding. <laughs> Let's address that right off the bat. It is a badass cover, and it's oh. a badass title. Yeah. Is a real, and I think the title speaks a lot to his transition from an acoustic artist into an electric artist, which apparently did not go very well the first time that he did it. And so I can see him sort of defiantly saying, No, I will be electric. God damn it. Like, I just wanted to point out because I just learned it this week. I've always liked that cover, I do think it's iconic and I think it helps sell the album in a large sense. But I just learned this week that it's our old friend Storm Thurgensen. And his really, yeah, the same guy who did the Pink Floyd covers and also really? Houses of the Holy. I mean, this guy is making all the great record covers. Damn, well, good for him. And the guy's got a, the guy's got a fucking aesthetic, definitely. It's but also like you could not get more different than like a Houses of the Holy cover and this cover, just in terms of what they're trying to get across. I don't know what he's trying to get across in Houses of the Holy cover. A bunch of prepubescent naked ladies hanging out on a ruin Some kind or of epic like godhead yeah. situation yeah. i should point out that storm thurgidson had a design group i think he had a partner called hypnosis where gnosis is spelled g-n-o-s-i-s and they're actually responsible for a lot of these and i think he got his start through the pink floyd collaboration because maybe he was old school friends with one of the pink floyd guys but yeah he did all these great covers through the 70s which is I just keep discovering that, and it's cool. I thought it was a fun week. I mean, I was also familiar with this record, I think, as Tom had alluded to. But I think upon, you know, closer listen, I was a little more surprised to see, you know, how directly downstream from Bowie and even the Kinks, right? Some of it was upon more direct inspection. I thought that was interesting. But yeah, Tom, you sort of alluded to it. You definitely expect it to be like way shreddier, Right then, then it is. It's actually just like a, it's like a very hip, sort of rambly rock and roll UK rock, right? Glam, as you put it, Rob. Well, it's it could be considered one of the first glam records. You said sure. downstream from David Bowie a couple times, and they were friends, and they definitely influenced each other. But in the timeline, this is pretty arguably upstream of Bowie. So yeah, I think it's a little more of the reverse. Again, they were kind of on the same scene. They actually knew each other as teenagers, even in the 60s. When did this record come out? 71. Huh. 
Yeah, because Ziggy Stardust wasn't until like 73, 74, right? Which I want to say 73, yeah. The Bowie records before that, I think, are, are Bowie records, but you know they don't have this sound, right? Yeah, and Bowen started to get some fire before, definitely before David Bowie did, uh, before this record came out. He had some top 40 hits, which we're going to get into in the background. I'll just jump in and tell you some of my thoughts. So yeah, I've also heard this record a bunch of times, but gave it the hard listen this week. I never thought of it as a shreddy guitar-driven record, I've always been surprised when you think about a song like Bang A Go and Get It On, you think about something that's going to be played in a stadium, in a sports stadium, and it is occasionally. And so you're expecting this big arena rock, heavy rocking number, but it's actually remarkably reserved and not quite down tempo, but there's just something reserved maybe about the production. His vocal style is kind of whispery throughout the piece. Do you think there's an acoustic cut of Bang and Gong, Get It On, that was like designed for orgies that they decided was not, <laughs> was like not, not as, didn't, it didn't work out. You know, they're like, nah, be. there must be. Mark Boland has orgy didn't experience. come together. Definitely <laughs> has orgy experience. No question about it. I, I wrote that it was almost an anti-rock record because it is so understated at times. I do think it's a very UK rock kind of thing and it was way bigger in the UK as we're going to learn but I really like it and I was reminded of how I think tight the production is the choice of tones the choice of how they compress the rhythm guitar to the snare drum how those strings come in I really think it's it's quite brilliant actually in, in most cases yeah I also have heard this album a million times the thing I like about Mark Bolin and T-Rex is that it's consistent you can you can kind of hear his presence in every instrument. Very unique sound. The thing is, though, is like I've heard this album so many times that like it stops delivering for me at some point. You know, listen fifty, and so when I listen, when I think T Rex, I always think of like the Slider or Futuristic Dragon, which two albums that came out came out later that I, that I think are my favorites. Well, I will say I. Tony Visconti, the producer of this album, described it as revamped Chuck Berry. And it wasn't saying it in a complimentary way, by the way. He was like, yeah, it's like there's nothing super special going on. It's just kind of revamped Chuck Berry. And I got that sense, definitely. But I also was with that in my head being like, well, Chuck Berry's a much better guitar player. Chuck Berry's doing a lot more in guitar. And Rob, the restraint intentional or otherwise is definitely evident on this album it is not a as much of a guitar forward album as i was expecting it to be again and i had heard it a bunch but i think i'd done a lot of passive listening to it and not really dove into these songs and like oh let me let me really think about what's going on here i think you're saying the same thing as me is that when you envision bang a gong in particular you think of this big guitar driven song but it's really not but i'm surprised to hear you say the guitar work is not good i think the guitar work is very tasty and yes, it's not shreddy at all. I agree. He's not an amazing guitar player, but it's tasteful and it's pocket. And and I think the tones, especially on the rhythm guitar, are just really, really tasty and sweet to my ear. Rhythmically complicated. It moves in a way that he's, he's a, I think he's a great guitar player. He's a great rhythm guitar player. Absolutely. Chuck Berry is a great rhythm guitar player and a great like rhythmic lead guitar player. And again, I'm not trying to denigrate Mark Bolin here. I had this impression that it was going to be much more guitar forward than it was. I don't know why it, it, in my head I just thought that. Again, it might just be the album cover. But listening back to it 
on closer examination, I was like, oh, he's really not doing a whole lot. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that it's it, like tasteful is a good way to put it. It's just not guitar god work. And for some reason, I had him as a guitar god in my head. Interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about where he comes from and his background, and, and feel free to continue interspersing your thoughts. So he comes from London. He's a very working class guy. His dad was a truck driver or a lorry driver, as they would say over there. And his mother worked at a fruit stall, which just sounds like something from 100 years ago. He was named after an uncle. I should mention he's Jewish. He was named after an uncle who was killed in the army by his own sergeant who beat him to death because he was Jewish. Oh, Lord. Yeah, so he's got that chip on his shoulder throughout his entire life, which is Strange. Don't do that to your kids, by the way. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure not to beat somebody's uncle to death uh, based upon their ethnicity. I mean, don't religion. name your kids after someone who died a horrible death like that. They're going to have that around their. It's an albatross around people's neck, I think. Well, sure, because he's not. He was. He's not Mark Bolin, right? He, but I guess Mark was the name, right? But, Mark was yeah, the name, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. Mar- uh, yes, it, Bolin is a stage name. So he was, he's kind of, they said fame was his drug, although cocaine was definitely also his drug. But he was convinced from a pretty young age that he was bound for the stage, bound for stardom. You know, he dressed really flamboyantly in the mid-60s and in London, even, you know, when he was a teenager. And he had tried, he got himself a manager and tried to release some solo singles early on. They didn't really go anywhere. Then at a point, he joined a kind of a going band called John's Children, which was an early psych band as the lead guitarist. Sounds very culty. Totally. So their claim to fame, they had like a hit record in, in Britain at the time. And while Mark Bowen was in the band, their claim to fame was that they got booked as the opener for The Who on a tour of Germany. But they got kicked off the tour by The Who for being too raucous. This is, this is the same, yeah, with Keith Moon was in this band. And he was like, nah, too much. Yeah. They would smash their instruments pretty much every time. But apparently they would they were basically upstaging them by, A, smashing their instruments, B, Mark Bowen coming out and whipping his guitar with a chain, which I believe he continued some version of into the 70s. And then the lead singer would, like, rip up feather pillows and get to the point where Roger Daltrey and everyone in the audience was, like, sneezing because there's feathers everywhere. <laughs> I, I do like the fact that they got kicked off because they did the Who's bit before the Who came on, which is kind of <laughs> like covering their, their favorite song or their best song or something like that before they come on. It's kind of a dick move, if I'm being honest. Kind of kind of reminds me of that Flaming Lips documentary where Butthole Surfers guy says oh, yeah. Flaming Lips stole all their, all their bits. But I guess in reality, it's more just like going on after all the bits. doesn't really matter who's doing it, right? It's just hard to follow that. Maybe so. So Mark Boland does a stint in that band, but he decides for a while anyway he's done with electric guitar. He's only in that band for maybe six or eight months. And he starts a, what's originally a folk duo, a two-piece called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And these early shows are him playing an acoustic guitar just sitting on the stage and the other guy playing bongos. Sounds great. <laughs> and every once in a while they would add some electric instrumentation like a bass player and things like that. Interesting little tidbit about Tyrannosaurus Rex. They actually did have some top 40 hits, and the band eventually morphed into T-Rex, right, that, that became much bigger. But they had some hits in the, in the late 60s, and they were actually the first band to headline Glastonbury Festival, the first Glastonbury Festival, rather, that was held in 1970. You know, it's funny. I, I saw an interview with a biographer of Mark Bolan, 
who was talking about the early Tyrannosaurus Rex stuff. And this is a guy who likes Mark Bullen enough to do a biography of them. And he said, I got to be honest, a lot of the stuff, the early stuff is just unlistenable. Totally unlistenable. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this goes to show you the transformation from, you know, early Tyrannosaurus Rex to the T-Rex that we get later. It's got to be, it's pretty stark. Listen to that and tell me he's not a hippie. I dare you. (laughs) I think he made some transitions. He was trying to find his sound. But the point is, he was getting some traction. And so actually what I read was, I think it was in those early days, pre-Tyrannosaurus Rex days, he originally met Bowie when they were both teenagers trying to break in as songwriters. And they had the same manager. And the way they first met was the manager who would normally try to get them gigs on the weekend didn't have any gigs for them. So instead hired them to come paint his office. And that's how they met. Apparently, the first thing Mark Bowman said to David Bowie was he insulted his shoes. He's like, your shoes are very uncool, man. We need to go shopping. So he took them thrift shopping. He seems like a character. It's a power move. He's, he's a character, definitely. <laughs> this is before Bowie was Bowie, though. So I do think there's a there's a case to be made that a guy like Mark Bowen was that fashion plate guy who really strongly influenced Bowie and brought him into that hip London flamboyant dressing kind of thing. I heard another anecdote about Bowie that I feel I need to relate, which is when Tyrannosaurus Rex first started getting a little heat and getting decent gigs, he agreed to have Bowie open for him. This is when Bowie's just still like an acoustic guitar songwriter before Bowie was Bowie. And apparently Bowie did a, his set was a mime about China's invasion of Tibet and he got booed off the stage. (laughs) Yeah, I'd fucking boo that. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like a real... doesn't warm me up for the T-Rex show coming, you <laughs> no. know? doesn't make me want to bang a gong and get it on. <laughs> Definitely not. So anyway, so they were kind of moving along, but at some point, he decides he wants more fame. He wants bigger sound. He, he wants to move back into the electric space. He's not getting the accolades that he really wants. And so he remakes the band as T-Rex, an electric band, and they very quickly score a hit record. And one of the things they talk about is the first time they went on top of the pops, somebody in his entourage, maybe it was his manager, just throws some glitter under his eyes. This is like in 1969, maybe. And that is considered the first glam outing on TV. Like people watched that on TV and they were like, what is going on? There's a, there's a man with glitter on that, that, you know, He's breaking all the social norms. Society's crumbling. Well, I want to throw something out there that I found to be very interesting, and I think that it somewhat informs the Electric Warrior title, which is the apparently the first electric gig that Tyrannosaurus Rex did. Before they even rebranded as T-Rex, they did a gig where Mark Boland played an electric guitar, and it was like an electric gig. And he gets the gig. And then he puts an ad in Melody Maker to get the musicians to play at said gig. And Melody Maker comes out on Wednesday, and the gig is Wednesday night. And so <laughs> the paper comes out in the in the morning, and then they audition people during the day, and then they play the gig that night, and it is a fucking disaster. And he gets booed off of stage, and apparently takes why. it very personally – and eschews electric guitar for a while after that. And it's like, oh, we're going to be all acoustic. Electric just doesn't work. And so this like switch to like T-Rex as an electric band is somewhat like almost defiantly. It's like the, you know, Bob Dylan getting booed at the Newport Folk Festival for playing electric guitar. 
And then he turns around. Bob Dylan immediately was like, fuck you. I'll be all electric now. But Mark Boland like took it personally and was like, ah, for a couple of years, he was like, I'm not going to play electric guitar anymore. So I thought that I thought that was very interesting and also a crazy fucking move to say like <laughs> he seems a little unhinged for sure, but also like a sensitive soul. And I think that's the picture you're, you're painting as well. Like a lot of things kind of got to him and his and they talk about how even Electric Warrior was his attempt to break into the U.S. because he was having a lot of fame in the U.K. Some of the Tyrannosaurus Rex stuff was hits in the U.K., but it hadn't reached the U.S. And then he even releases a T-Rex record, doesn't really make a splash in the U.S. And so he tried to rethink a little bit of the sound to court American audiences. Well, I didn't think of it as him being a sensitive soul necessarily. I thought of it as him being extraordinarily image conscious. And that's what you have to be if you're trying to be a rock star. It was like, my goal is to be a rock star. You have to think about it from the image standpoint. And I'm not trying to talk shit on this album, but like so much of this album is attitude that makes it work. And if you don't have that attitude and that image behind it, like this stuff is relatively ho-hum without the Mark Bolin sexuality, sensuality, skankiness, whatever the fuck he brings to the table. See, I totally disagree in the sense that I agree that if you watch videos of them live, he seems quite extra. So to me, the comparison between that and what we actually get on the recording is quite, there's quite a disparity there. And that's why I keep saying words like reserved and understated. The fact that he's able to make what we got here, to me, it seems very disconnected from all this glam imagery. And I agree there's that sexuality to the vocal and things like that, but it just feels very coherent and like a narrow band of an artistic idea being expressed. Whereas the stage show is the sort of more wild, flamboyant performance art. I think I'm specifically thinking about it from the vocal standpoint. I listen to a lot of isolated vocal tracks of the T-Rex songs, like YouTube videos you can pull up, where it's just like, just Mark Boland's vocal track on X song or whatever. And there is so much off-mic noise that he's doing, these weird breath intakes and groans and stuff that I do really think pepper the songs with this level of non-direct delivery that give it a little bit more of this kind of like sexuality and, and kind of yeah, just overall sexiness that I think. Why are you listening to I said vocal takes? <laughs> yeah, that did strike me as odd. Can I do my fucking research, bitch? Right, huh. <laughs> okay, I think that should lead us to our favorite segment on the podcast, By the Numbers. We're kind of up to Electric Warrior in the story. Let's talk T-Rex's Electric Warrior, By the Numbers. This was released on the 24th of September, 1971, produced by, as we mentioned, Tony Visconti. The first number I want to throw out there, it's already been alluded to, it's five feet, five inches. That is Mark Boland's height. He is a small man. That's small. That's smaller than Tom Cruise, small. Almost an elf. That is surprising, <laughs> but honestly, that picture makes a lot more sense now, because I was picturing he had just an absurdly large Marshall stack behind him, and it's just a normal size Marshall That's stack. a champ. That's a Fender champ. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next number I want to throw out there is number six. This is the sixth studio record made by Mark Bolan. And primarily, they were made with Mark Bolan and Tony Visconti. They met early on, formed a partnership. And so 
that's one of the reasons I think you get a fairly mature production because they had been working together for a while. They kind of knew each other's styles and they had, as Visconti put it, developed a bag of tricks in the studio and felt confident how they could yield things like tape loops and backwards guitar, things of that nature. It's hilarious to me. I saw an interview with uh, Tony Visconti talking about Mark Boland and he said the first time that he met him, he wasn't sure that he could actually speak English because Tony Visconti is American. <laughs> and he was like, I don't know if he's actually speaking English to me or what's going on here. Uh. He's very strange, dude. Well, he's that kind of tells you where some of the lyrics from the record come from. He seems like the kind of guy who speaks in poems. But for me, it really works. Okay, next number I want to throw out you. Number 32. That was Electric Warrior's highest chart position in the U.S. It did not hit the U.S. in the way that Mark Bolin was hoping for. Whereas, number one is the highest position it reached in the U.K., where it remained for eight weeks, and it continued to chart on that chart for almost a full year after the release. It was a huge hit in Britain and really didn't make a splash at all in America. So, like a lot of things in Diamory's book, this is definitely a British phenomenon that we're kind of trying to understand from afar. If I had a number 35 hit in the U.S., I'd be pretty damn happy about that. I don't know if I'd be like, oh, my God, this is total abject failure. I didn't have a number one. I'd be like, number 35? I'll fucking take that. He said during an interview that I saw that he did want to sell this album in the U.S. badly, so he included a um, a full poster with the record in the U.S. I got my copy. No poster, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it was stolen before it got, went back to the used record store. I want to throw one last number at you. I'm going to bring you down for a second. 29, the age at which Mark Boland died tragically in a car accident in 1977. His longtime girlfriend was driving and was injured but not killed. And ironically, he always said he never learned to drive purposely because he was afraid of an early death by car crash. That is the thing that blew my mind. It's fucked up. Like, of all... The only thing that I can take away from these lyrics with any coherence is that Mark Bolin wants to fuck a car. And yet he never <laughs> learned how to drive? What the hell is going on? I think he had a, a pretty big car collection, too, even though he didn't drive. On almost every album, he's just singing about cars. So many cars. I happened to read a little bit. I went on a little w Wikipedia wormhole and learned more about the Hollywood Vampires Drinking Club of which Mark Bolin was often a visiting member. I was say, it sounds like a founding member. <laughs> yeah. So Alice Cooper founded it with Keith Moon, Ringo, Mickey Dolans of the Monkees, and Harry Nielsen. And then anytime a visiting celebrity who could drink properly, in their minds, came by, they would come to the Rainbow Bar and Grill in Hollywood, and their initiation was that they had to drink more than everyone else at the table. That is a recipe for a fucking hospital visit there. That solidified something I'd always kind of wondered about, because if you remember later, Alice Cooper formed an all-star band with Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah, Slash yeah. might have been in the band at one point, And a few people like that, and they're called the Hollywood Vampires. But it's, it's a tribute to this club they had in the 70s where they just... Okay, let's talk about how Electric Warrior was made. So speaking of wanting it to be a big hit in America, it was made over four months, basically while on tour in America across different studios. So the fact that it has a consistent sound is actually quite astounding, given that it was recorded in London, L.A., and New York. I think a total of like six studios across those three locations. And like I said, Mark Bolin and Tony Visconti had been working together for a long time, 
on the other Tyrannosaurus Rex records. And so they had a series of what they called sonic tricks or musical signatures. They felt really, really comfortable using effects that we've talked about before on this podcast, like tape flanging and backwards reverb and just using effects to, to great effect, let's say. We should mention that Visconti kind of gets his start here with Mark Bolin because they were close friends from an early age. But then he goes on to have tons of production credits, including working with Bowie from a really early period. He produced a bunch of Bowie records, like including the last Bowie record, Black Star, but also stuff like Man Who Sold the World and Low, and he gets a or he gets a co-production credit on Low and Heroes, the Brian Eno stuff. The one tidbit I heard that's kind of funny, missed opportunity from Visconti is he hooks up with Bowie early, and so on Bowie's very first record, the one that has Space Oddity on it. Visconti is the producer. But when Bowie plays in the demo of Space Oddity, Tony Visconti's like, that's a novelty song. I don't need to produce that. And hands it off to the engineer for his first ever production credit to produce Space Oddity. That's very interesting. Visconti has a ton of work, not just with Bowie, though, right? Like he's done. Totally. Like I think he's the Thin Lizzy guy. I saw that he did Sparks, which I know is a uh, fan <laughs> He's got favorite. Some Sparks credits. He's got some <laughs> Thin Lizzy credits. Not Jailbreak, but some other ones. He's got some Gentle Giant credits. Yeah, he's got a. He's done a and, lot. He's an arranger, right? That's his kind of like forte, right? Yes, he's responsible for all the strings on the record. Which that was the, one of the other things I wanted to say. So that was something I noticed really strongly on this close listen was what the string arrangements were doing. I think they're very, very well done and, and arranged uh, something i thought about the strings that i uh, that is interesting is that they're they're largely not mellotron right they're real strings and it's just something like you sort of notice overall i don't know what the budget was for this record or wasn't but it, it, it sort of has like a lo-fi simplistic rock and roll vibe so the strings do stand out because they are as you're pointing out like really Mature arrangements. On the back of the record, it, it, it says saxophones and flugelhorn as the uh, credited musicians section. Yeah, there's no credit for the strings. And it could possibly be that I saw a, um, a tidbit that the background vocals on this album were done by Flo and Eddie which is the working group name of two guys that were the founding members of the Turtles. And then they became a background. They, they did a bunch of other work. And so they were working as a background singing duo as Flo and Eddie. And Tony Visconti said, like, Flo and Eddie worked with T-Rex on a couple of albums up until Electric Warrior. So they actually, I think they actually were on a Tyrannosaurus Rex album. But then after Bang a Gong became a hit, they asked to get paid for the first time. And Mark Bolin was like, fuck you. I thought we were just cool, man. <laughs> and like, like, no, we want to get paid for this. And so they never worked together after that. He's like, I'm not paying you to sing on my albums. Come on. I thought we were just cool, man. Interesting. Yeah, they. I think they also were in the second early but second incarnation of the Mothers of Invention, I feel like. Totally, yeah. Yeah, they were definitely Frank Zappa guys, too. Yeah, that's cool. So I don't know anything about the budget of the record, but yeah, I'm pretty confident those are real strings, I, th I think, right? Is that... They really sound they like really real strings, so I, yeah, it's weird I, that they're I, not credited, huh? Totally. I mean, I'm totally fooled if they're not real strings. I don't think that there was the technology in 1970, 1971 to fool my ears for a full string section there. Because there's definitely some real 
cello sawing at the strings. You cannot do that on a synth in 1971. There's no possibility that's going to Yeah, it's, it's a good point. There's some good dynamic stuff. Yeah, there's a few fun guest stars on this, too. I don't know if you guys picked up, but Ian McDonald from King Crimson plays sax on this. Hell yeah. And Rick Wakeman gets a piano credit. Really underplaying, by the way. That's it's not stretching Rick Wakeman's ability. <laughs> yeah, they're like Rick. You can only use two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. So I heard the story about that. He plays on Bangagon Get It On. That he was a friend of Visconti, and he was really struggling to pay his rent. And so Tony was like, "You can come play keyboards on this track." And Rick Wakeman heard it. He's like, "I don't think this track needs keyboards." Tony's like, "Do you want to get paid or not? Just come in and do something." <laughs> and he did, and he was apparently paid nine pounds. And that oh, was that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Lord. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about the specific songs. Let's jump in and go chronologically through the record. I know we listened to the biggest hit earlier, but we're going to start from the top, and we're going to listen first to the track called Mambo Sun. too much time trying to research when claps started being mixed into snares in a recording context. I'm sure that concept has been around since time immemorial with human beings, but I couldn't quite figure it out, but it, it couldn't have happened. Did the Beatles put claps on the snare? Was that a thing? Does anyone know? Probably. No I couldn't idea. pick out a Beatles song right now, but probably. I mean, there's definitely de- Beatles songs with, you know, power claps. But I, I think I'm drawing a distinction between claps over top of the snare and claps that are mixed in for a snare sound that I think forms the foundation for a lot of the later drum machine stuff. Yeah, it's, it's the snare, the clap with some sort of like reverb thing happening. It gives a kind of a delay situation. Since we're talking about the drums, um, one thing about this whole, the whole album, this song in particular, is it's, there's not a crash cymbal in the entire song. It's literally hi-hat snare drum, kick drum, and clap the entire song. And a lot of songs that we listen to, there's no... I, I couldn't find a tom, like a tom fill, in any of these songs. It's all just like stripped down, kick, snare, hi-hat, with an occasional crash. Bill Legend, the drummer, has said that they went into the studio and they would record like six songs a day. And they would not have heard or rehearsed the songs before the song started. And so it was basically just like, just come on, just follow me and play along. And so you're inherently not going to be doing a lot of stuff. A lot of these are just rock beat one holding it down because he doesn't know what the fuck's happening. And so he's sort of just like, okay, we're just going to sort of do this thing. And you can tell when they had a little bit more time with a song. Right. And this is not one of those songs. He did yeah. not have time with this song. Because Mark Bolin was terrified of getting his songs ripped off or stolen. And so he would, he would bring the demos by hand to the studio and teach them to the band at that exact moment. Well, also I read that if he, he kind of had this feeling of the live energy that if anything went past like three takes, 
he didn't want to do it anymore. He was just over it at that point. Needed some more cocaine. <laughs> like, I got to go use the bathroom for 15 minutes. I'll be right back. So I like this song. It's not my favorite song. I agree it's simple, like a lot of the stuff on the record. But to me, there are some really nice production touches on it, starting with the claps on the stair, which we already talked about. But I really like the double-tracked rhythm guitars. I think it's a great record for rhythm guitar, generally, right? But you get that rhythm guitar coming in on the right, and then after a little while, a different toned guitar, a different guitar comes in on the left. They're both kind of understated and pulled back. Mm -hmm. And a timestamp I'll mention that I just think is something you don't hear a lot. And again, it's understated for a guitar record, or maybe this isn't a guitar record. 233. There's a little guitar solo or a little guitar passage that comes in, sans vocals, and then right after it starts up, it gets doubled on the left side by another guitar, an octave down. I just thought that was a cool effect. It is a cool effect, and I again, I actually like the guitar work on this album, but I do think that there is a you can get a sense of how unrehearsed and unpracticed it is by the way that it is executed in these songs. And I again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but that guitar that's panned right, that does kind of like some of these guitar hits and stabs and stuff like that, it's super inconsistent. And when it comes in and what like the timing of it, sometimes he sounds hesitant on some of these hits. And I think that it is again, I'm not saying this to say it is a bad thing. I think it's actually maybe more impressive that he didn't have a part worked out and he just sat down and had a very limited amount of time to do a part and was kind of like, oh, that's the part. It's not I didn't write a part out. I just sort of played along to it as it was happening. I think he actually had a part written out. I think I read an interview where Tony Visconti actually said he had he had prepared that solo. Just No, I'm not talking about the solo. I'm talking about like these like hits that are kind of going on in the right like the panned right parts. They're like rhythm guitar hits and they're again very inconsistently applied. Right, right. Right. Which makes the whole thing feel like a take. So that kind of supports what he was doing to the other musicians, which is to say it's just about getting an improvisational feel on a relatively simple, structured song. And in that sense, I think it's a very purposeful aesthetic to not aim for that that kind of perfection, right? Because we all know pouring over something can can go awry pretty quickly. But also maybe it harkens back to what, if he's trying to go back to the roots of American rock and roll, the Chuck Berry stuff, I don't really think this sounds like Elvis or Chuck Berry or whoever he might have been trying to reference there, but there is a different approach to recording that happened back in the 50s, which was more about the band getting a take or not. I don't hate the Chuck Berry reference. I mean, obviously, like to Tom's point, it lacks guitar solos in that way, right? Like Chuck Berry songs usually have like a pretty cool, finessed sort of signature guitar concept that he's going to work on that solo and and these songs largely just aren't about that many they don't have guitar solos largely 
But uh, it it is like a there's a shuffle to it, right? It's a little slowed down. Well, that's the other thing we've been talking about cocaine a lot because it was the '70s <laughs> and because we all watched the video from Bert Sugarman's Midnight. I, I, that's the only reason I'm here. Can we just dive into that now? <laughs> <laughs> sure. sure. But I'm just I'm a little surprised at that the tempo of these songs is also subdued. This doesn't sound like people hopped up on cocaine. It's a good point. <laughs> tell us, tell us what you think about that live performance, Phil. Man, it's great. Well, as I recall, I mean, he's basically just—he looks like a vampire. He looks like a cocaine vampire, and he's—he's he's, he's wearing a cape, I believe, and it's like a seventeen-minute banger. Gone, get it on, right? <laughs> good amount of flop sweat going on there, I believe. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, they vamp it pretty hard, and then he puts the guitar down on the ground and starts whipping it with a bull. Yes, yes, yeah. I forgot about that. I'm glad you brought that up. He is caped, right? Maybe that Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special. If any of you listeners have never delved into Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special, please do yourself a favor and just find your favorite '70s band and find a performance from them on Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special. It is fucking fantastic agreed there was the one god it was like reo speedwagon doing roll with the changes <laughs> and the yeah. piano player is so coked up that you can just watch he's just shaking the whole time it's so coked-tastic yeah how, how, how does he hit his parts though he nails it absolutely nails yeah. it oh, he's, nailing great. It. <laughs> he's nailing it but it's made worse by the fact that the camera's tight on his face the whole time so you're seeing the sweat come off his brow like the whole time he's yeah. like twitching yeah it's pretty great. It's like it makes me wish that I was a rock star in the seventies. Honestly, it seems like it'd be a lot of fun. Okay, let's keep this train rolling and hit on the next song on our focus list: "Cosmic Dancer." I was dancing when I was twelve. I was dancing when I was twelve. I was dancing when I was out. I was dancing when I was out I danced myself right out the womb I danced myself right out the womb Is it strange to dance so soon? I know Tom said that him being sexy and being a pervert and all that kind of stuff. This song does not mention cars or women once. You act like I'm the one out here like making these denigrating him as a like a car crazed <laughs> sex pervert, okay? You yeah, yeah I'll stand you are, yeah. No. But you know what? I like this song. It's a happy song. You know, it's weird, the topic's weird, but I think it's a I think it's a happy happy song. Is the topic dancing? He's just been dancing since he was a kid. He's going to dance into the tomb. I think more specifically, he he's dancing. been dancing since he was, ah, which, what the fuck is that lyric? <laughs> I've been dancing since I was, ah. I got to say, I think On Balance, this is my favorite song on the record. This is the highlight. I think it's an impeccable, timelessly cool production. It does also sound like some of the other tracks, but what really makes it for me is the string arrangement. I think the string arrangement really, really sells this one. And it's hip even now, and I know that because I've heard it on a bunch of indie soundtracks. It just feels made for a modern hip indie movie soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
But if you just specifically go listen to the string hits that drop in, I, I think they only happen once in the song. Because, I mean, there's strings throughout. But there's this one specific thing the string responds to. Starts at about 222. It's so dope. So unexpected. It's perfect. I dance myself out of the My note on this one is that, that this this felt more produced than a lot of the other songs. They it felt like they took their time on this one a little Heck bit more yeah. than they took on the other songs. Yeah. When you really start digging in, the tones of the of some stuff like the drums are a bit different. They they have some similarities, but you can tell they were recorded different places. But to me, the snare tone is so punchy and cool that the guy ends up doing a lot of snare rolls, but they're so not in your face. They're not tickling my eardrum in the least. There's something I really, really, really dig about it. And last but not least, Phil, I cannot believe Phil has not mentioned, there are dueling backwards guitar solos. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, this has this. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I am a massive sucker for backwards guitar and this totally crush, you know, epic backwards guitar solo. Yeah, and they do that, and I, to me, it's somehow not overkill. The other thing I like about that section, it comes in at about 3.15, we can drop in a little snippet, is there's the backing vocals over it that are very in the back, just kind of doing the distant ahs. Really, mm-hmm. really cool kind of coda section. It's very Hendrixy, like in a in a genuine way. Well, not the rhythm section so much, but like the the overall execution. I have to say, and I know it's probably uncharitable to this album, but I I hear the backwards guitar, and it just sounds like a trope to my modern ears. Of oh, this is the time of backwards guitar, and I know again, it's not charitable to it because it wasn't played out at the time. But it sounds kind of played out to me in my modern. That's, that's fair. I had to recontextualize it to say that. Like, oh no, this wasn't something that people were kind of like. Oh, that old fucking chestnut of backwards guitars. Okay. I, I feel like we in this friend group have talked about it more than it actually exists out in the world. I don't know how common it really is. It's just a. It's so stark when it happens that you're just like, ah, oh, well. You can't ignore it, and so it jumps to the fore of any song that you're listening to. The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix. I think the chop employed some backwards guitar. You know, R.E.M. on What's the Frequency, Kenneth, of course. Ah, yes. This was a song that is very simple. And, Rob, I'm not going to say it's my favorite song, but upon closer examination, I liked this song a lot more. I think this was one of the ones that just faded into the background for me when I was listening to it passively for most of my life. And, yeah, I think it's pretty good, but I kind of can't get over the dancing what the fuck is up with that pronunciation i don't understand like that's not a london thing have you never heard of you never heard a british person talk i've heard many <laughs> british people talk <laughs> i've never heard a british person say dance <laughs> is that he's like a, a yeah he's a dandy he's a dandy he's just he's very purposefully strange yeah like he was friends with david bowie from when they were kids. And David Bowie's song is not called Let's Dance. It's fucking Let's Dance. Right? <laughs> David Bowie has some pretty strange pronunciation occasionally. Yeah, but that's too. not one of them. <laughs> okay, let's move it right along to 
another song. <laughs> this one is called <laughs> another song. Jeepster. <laughs> So I learned from listening to the isolated vocals that this is take one of this song, which is impressive because this song fucking rocks. How do you know that? Because they say, Jeepster, take one, and then the fucking vocals oh, yeah. start. And also, Rob, <laughs> this is not hand claps on the uh, that, you know how they, they augment the snare hits every once yeah, in a while? Yeah. It is Mark Boland stomping on the ground in the fucking vocal booth, which is really cool. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, it's he's wearing boot heels. Or sorry, boots with heels because he's so short. Yeah, I'm not shocked by that at all. <laughs> and yeah, he's stomping on the ground, which is definitely a cool effect. And you can hear it kind of isolated right at the beginning, although I guess the snare drum is over it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I got an appreciation for this, and it made me rethink some of my studio approach, he doubles all of his vocals. So all of his vocal takes are doubled, but they are, to say they're imperfectly doubled would be very charitable to them. He holds notes for different lengths of time. He gives notes different treatments. He's hitting the same notes, but the timbre of it is different. Sometimes he gives it a little vibrato, and it sounds really fucking cool in the final product. And I've been in this situation where you're trying to double a vocal, and you're trying to do it precisely to what you did before with no variation. And I honestly think that I'm doing it wrong. I think that there should be a little bit more variance in it. It would give it a little bit more attitude and feel. I agree, essentially. I think this is a different approach to the vocal double, right, that uh, that just comes off very different, right? And maybe lends itself to a, a certain type of a wide pan, right? And maybe there's certain accompaniment that is required to sort of make it work in the mix. But yeah, I agree. And in general... It happens here, but like I, I love this sort of like mid-fi mix, and I think this this is sort of a cornerstone, you know, vocal technique of that that era. This this song also has I think some cool guitar work. It's kind of rockabilly. It's kind of like slow hand, clapped in, interesting timing of the the rhythm hits on the guitar. Apparently, he was influenced by a Howlin' Wolf song called "You'll Be Mine." which I listened to and I kind of saw some 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 parallel. And by the time I got to this song, I was kind of like reading about Mark Boland and T-Rex while listening to the album, is that he was really, really into blues in general. He like worshipped Eric, Eric Clapton and was just really into blues. And like the more I thought about that while listening to this, I was like, oh yeah, he's, he's playing a lot of blues. I, I could totally hear Eric Clapton thing. playing this song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the song would be called I Hate Immigrants if he was by it. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I So a Jeepster, I guess he's referring to him, himself because a Jeep's like a term for young adult male of average or insignificant stature. 
which, which <laughs> oh. I think maybe it's like some kind of self-own. I don't know. Anyway. That's real UK slang? Is that so? Is the yeah. record label Jeepster then named after this song, or you think named after that slang? I couldn't quite figure that out. Uh, I'm not sure. I was just cur- curious, because I know Jeepster's a, a car, like in America. It's a it's a Jeep. It's like an old Jeep. They call it the Jeepster. But but when I when I Googled it, I was like, oh, no, it's like a term for like a, yeah. A young adult male of average or insignificant stature. I feel like we've abstracted a little bit from the main point. Is that this song is a fucking jam? This is a yeah, really good yeah, song. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's a great song. I like all the songs we've talked about so far, but this is the most up-tempo number probably on the record. So it definitely rocks. It's got that cool descend line that sort of starts with a two-note descend and then jumps up and does the farther descend, like right before the chorus, the first time they do it is like 42 seconds in. But my note on that was like, you could have just done a straight descend and gone from a high note on down. But the fact that they do a sort of lower note and they jump up to a higher note to then descend from there, it makes it way less stock and way less ho-hum. Very tasteful. I think it was, it was very tastefully done. And this is one of those songs that made me realize that calling it warmed up Chuck Berry is not doing it its credit. There is more thought put into it than just I stole some blues shit and I'm just going to kind of play straight blues and, you know, call it Led Zeppelin or whatever. Absolutely. Okay, let's tackle the big guy. Next on our list, the big hit. The one you've definitely heard before. Bang a gong, get it on. Let's hear another snippet of that. I'll throw out that I had listened to this song a bunch in my life. Never really liked it. Never really cared for it. It never really stood out as something that I gave a particular shit about. And then in like 2008, I think, we played a show with Triple Cobra at the bottom of the hill. That was a band where it was like a husband and wife and then the wife's sister and then a backing band. And they had two female backup singers and the main guy and they were kind of like a skank rock type of like slashes snake pit style band and they did this version of bang a gong and i was like this song fucking amazing and i got it like i got it in seeing it live i don't necessarily think that this particular recording of it captures what this would have been live but i get it a little bit more it's slinky it's sexy. Was it captured on Silverman? Silverman's Midnight Special or whatever? Oh, Sugarman. Yeah, yeah. That's the one we're talking yeah, about where he yeah. whips the guitar, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about Triple Cobra playing it live. Dude, Triple Cobra, We, you were in the band that I played with when we played with Triple Cobra. It was at the bottom of the hill. It was in fucking 2008. <laughs> I don't remember anybody playing Bang and Gone Get It On. It was great. Yeah, I, no, I, rem- I remember that. It was great. It was really great. And it was, it was a good fit for that band, which is always nice when the cover kind of fits the band. Yeah. Listen, my take is, it is a, I do like the song a lot. 
it does it stands out a little bit from the rest of the tracks on the album because of the background vocal i guess a million percent yes it's all the background vocal. but other than that it actually stays pretty consistent and true to the vibe of the rest of the record which is that rhythm guitar it's only kind of hitting on the and beats never on the never on the downbeat and you have all these little touches in there that i noticed this time like the aforementioned rick wakeman I think he literally just did the glissando, the piano roll that you hear in there. That was the entire take. <laughs> so he, he might have used it. one finger? <laughs> he didn't even use two? He might have used one <laughs> finger, exactly. It's got <laughs> Ian McDonald of King Crimson on on two saxophones, I believe, both alto and baritone sax, the guy who played on Court of the Crimson King and he guests on Red and is a sick player. Probably not necessary to recruit someone that good for these parts, but sounds good. I I dig it. In terms of an arena rock song, I think this is about as good as you're going to get. Yeah, in a lot of ways, like a lot of these tracks, like they have like a heavily layered, and you talked about it, I think, back on Mambo Sun, right? Like, uh, like they're layered in this just really gentle way, right? Where it's almost track one is badly underplayed with the knowledge that like, you know, I'm going to come back, I'm going to scrub in this other take or something. Uh, and, and when you do that a couple of times, you do get something pretty interesting, or at least they do here. We've, well, we've been talking about it, but I just think every tone on this is manicured. Every tone of every instrument has this roundness to it. I don't know if it's because it's been compressed or like nothing is abrasive about what's going on here. And it, and that fits with his vocal style too, right? Because he almost never sort of belts out. He's always doing this throaty whisper thing for for most of the record and that to me that just like fits with how the rest of the instruments are are dialed in on the amps well there is a thesis around this that this might have been the perfect time for like natural amp overdrive he's not rocking like crazy distortion pedals he doesn't have a fucking pedal board in front of him he's got an amp that he's like overdriving and cranking by like turning it up and it just like even if you go into a studio nowadays, the gold standard is like seventies era fucking amps that are just like we're just gonna put this in a room by itself and crank the shit out of it. And it's gonna sound fucking great. And this might have been that golden age sure. of just natural amp crunch to give you that perfect sound. Fair enough. I Rob, you talked about the backup vocals on this one, and I do think that they absolutely make this song. I had never noticed that there were oohs and ahs on this, but the oohs that come in over the second verse, they're fucking great. It fills it out in the way that just gives the rest of the music something to lay into. It's like a fucking pillow that you just can kind of lay on top. But I think my favorite part of it is the right at uh, 318. They've been doing the bang-a-gong, get it on, get it on. So right at 318, they've been doing the bang-a-gong, get it on again and again and again and again. And then it stops, and you can tell it was unrehearsed because one of the backup vocalists yeah. doesn't realize it. It goes, get it on. And it's just like the totally. fucking yeah, yeah. mono. 100%. Like, yeah. It's my favorite part of the song. And they were like, you know, lean into it. Lean into that shit. We're going to keep that shit in there. It's great. Yeah, no, no, I know exactly, because when I, I heard that too, and I thought like, well, they obviously heard it too, and chose to keep, like, they could have just yeah, mute, 
unmute, yep. right? Like it would be very easy, like on on bounce, yeah. you know. That wasn't a tough edit at all. No, no, no. no. But they, and when they, even the guy who's singing it is kind of like, get it on, like yeah, sort yeah, of like oh shit, no, he realizes halfway through he shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> right, it's only the second time he's heard the song, so yeah, fucking a. And he's super um, high on cocaine. One other thing I want to talk about, which is this is the when I briefly played drums in the chop, and I was not a good drummer. Let's preface it by this. This was the one technique that I could never master, and I know it's not a hard technique, and Marty, you're going to fucking laugh at me for this. But what they do over the chorus, where like normally the snare drums over the two and four and the kicks on the one and three, and then they change it to the snares on the one, two, three, four, and the kicks on the one and two and three and four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that technique because it pulls everything together for just that chorus, and then, like, when they bust back to the normal kick, snare, kick, snare, everything opens up again. It's a great technique, and I really wish I was a better drum player and I could execute that. Yeah, it's a great it's a great way to kind of change the feel of the song, mid-song, without changing time signatures or anything else. What I like about this song is I think it's the coolest song lyrically. You know, cloak full of eagles, I think, is a cool, <laughs> a cool line. I think, like, get it on, bang a gong, get it on, is just kind of a cool word salad yeah i just think it's cool lyrically of of the songs that we we selected this week it's it's in my opinion the coolest could you imagine having a gong next to your bed just you know like as you're <laughs> yeah. doing just, uh, yeah just <laughs> i guess i can i absolutely yeah. can yeah like your wife would be like what the fuck are you doing and you're like oh, i just had to announce to the world <laughs> we're getting it on <laughs> I bought this fucking gong, all right? I'm going to use it for something. So it was a Get It On time, though, because this was originally titled Get It On, but there was another hit song in the UK called Get It On. So he was encouraged to change it to Bang A Gong, parentheses, Get It On. Interesting. It was pre-Let's Get It On, of course, right? Correct, That will come later, yeah. Okay, well, we're almost done. One more thing to talk about here, which is the last track on the album, the aptly titled rip off song it did not impress me it kind of annoyed me there's one chord that happens after every ripoff after the last ripoff of every yeah verse. i know what you mean it's yeah it's just great chord and that to me is the highlight of the song just that one chord it seems like he's a different singer on this song, like it lacks all of the sex, it lacks all of the effortless groove, and I think effortless groove is a good way to describe basically everything that has happened up to this point. And then for some reason they forgot all of that, and then they made it their last song of their fucking album. I don't understand. I I mean in like a precursor to punk sort of way. It's cool, right? Like if I saw T Rex and they 
came out and did an encore and it was awesome. And then they came out for like a second encore and did this. I'd be like, yeah, you know, cause I'm really into T-Rex and it's a small club and it's like, you know, London, 1972. Right. But uh, these are, these are extenuating circumstances. You'd be like, yeah, the, the president is weird and he does have a burgundy beard. You tell me, Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wrote that down too. I mean, his lyrics are pretty silly throughout, but that one really stuck out to me as dumb. Yeah, they seem to drop. You're right. It sounds like a totally different band almost and definitely a different session. And the vocals are different. None of the groove. I, definitely my low point. That's why I put it on the record. I thought the opening drum beat was actually one of the cooler things, but then it just descends kind of from there. It has a little bit of comeback in the bridge. Like that feels the bridge at 125 feels a little bit like the rest of the record. <laughs> I'm the king of the highway I'm the queen of the harbor You should see me at the governor's ball It's like the opposite of like a palate cleanser, you know? Like it, it, it does cleanse your palate, so to that end it's effective, but... Definitely at least would have stuck it in the middle somewhere to bury it. It's like at the end of the night when you've been like pleasantly drinking beer and you're like pleasantly drunk and about to go home and one of your friends is like, let's do a shot of Jameson. And you're like, ah, fine. And then you hop in the cab and you're like, oh, God damn it. That was the wrong way to end this evening. The wrong way to do it. It was the wrong way to end this album. So much of this album seems so, I said effortless before, but it's just pocket and it's just nice and it's grooving. And this is choppy. And not that at all. And at the end of the album, you don't want to be thrown out of the entire vibe of the album. That's fair. Agreed. Well, on that note, I think we've gabbed quite enough about T-Rex's Electric Warrior. So all that remains is for us to vote now. Is this a must hear before you die? We're going to throw it first to Tom. It's not my favorite album and... Again, upon a very in-depth listen, I liked it less than I had in my memory, but it's not a bad album by any stretch of the imagination, and in terms of overall importance, where it led, you definitely need to listen to this album. You can't talk about 70s rock and somebody's like, hey, well, what about T-Rex? You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never heard T-Rex in my life. You just can't do that. So you should listen to this album. Great. That's one yes vote. Marty. I agree with Tom. This is a yes for me. I any album that defines or starts an entire genre of music should be on on the list, in my opinion. Phil, what say you? Yeah, I I'm also going to give this a yes. And looking at the, the record this week, I, I was a little reluctant. I I've noticed I'm consistently a no when I feel like there may be some some more interesting records that I gave no's to. But at the end of the day, I just enjoy listening to this record, and you should too. And I, I particularly just love this sort of early 70s, mid-70s, sort of mid-fi era. It's sort of one of just my favorite eras of music in general. I just think it sounds great. Yeah, it's an easy yes for me. This is Rob here. T-Rextasy, yes please. It has a timeless quality, in my opinion, because of the production, because of the... I think Mark Boland just has a unique voice and perspective, meaning songwriting voice. And yeah, probably did kick off a ton of things, and it's an important part of the musical canon. But more importantly, it's a good listen, and it works great as both background music and as deep headphone attention music. So absolutely listen to T-Rex's Electric Warrior. 
Good on you, Mark. I had to point this out, and I realized it had not come up because I got my notes in front of me here. And you had talked about the songwriting, and I, you know, I had some qualms with the lyrics. I think in general they were not the most inspired. But I wanted to throw out, I want to throw out a quote that I got, which is that the lyrics of the music. I think he was very innovative. But then it was also very basic and vague in a sense. But there probably was a lot more meaning in there. And that was a quote from his son, Roland Bolin, which was the <laughs> fucking funniest thing that I learned. His son is named Roland Bolin. So I have a story about that. That was based on a dare. That was based on a dare from David Bowie, who named his son Zoe Bowie. Good Zoe Bowie uh, is better than Roland Bolin, by the way. Yes, Zoe Bowie now goes by Duncan Jones, but Roland Bolin still goes by Roland Bolin. And they tried to get Tony Visconti to name his son Monty, but he did not take the bait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's fucking great. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> okay, I think that all that's left now is to determine what we shall be listening to this week. What is our homework? Tom, I'm going to throw it to you. Well, thank you. I have the Albinator, and, you know, it's still in the corner doing comically large amounts of cocaine, and so I'm going to let it be for just a second. And instead of asking the Albinator what we should listen to next week, because it would probably just be the next T-Rex album, we are actually going to give a nod to America, because this should be coming out on the 3rd of July, and so we are going to do a seminal American band with a seminal American sound and a seminal American album, American Beauty by the Grateful Dead. That is what we will be covering for next week. I hope you all are as excited as I am to dive into that one. It's a jam. Awesome. Yeah, great, Rick. Fun, a lot of fun. And oddly enough, I said it was a jam. No jamming on this album. <laughs> no jam. That is anti-jam record. Jamming. Yes, exactly. Very acoustic. <laughs> Well, that should be great. Looking forward to that. Hope y'all listen in with us. Put on the Grateful Dead's American Beauty and tune in next week to hear our takedown of it or lift up of it, depending on where things are going to go. But either way, listen in and, and follow along with us. We appreciate your listenership. We, we thank you for tuning in, for sticking with us this long. If you have any thoughts about T-Rex, anything we might have missed in the story of, of Mark Bolin, please write us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We love hearing what you have to say, whether it's a complaint or a comment or more information about the artists we love to learn. Well, I was going to say one thing about the, the writing in, and I think that people might be a little hesitant to write in. We absolutely adore when people write in because especially if this is your favorite band your favorite artist your favorite album whatever we had one week to get to know this artist and to listen to this album there's a bunch of shit that i'm sure we missed and so if this is something that you have been obsessing over and learning about for your entire life please let us know the highlights that we missed or things we got wrong misconceptions that we had this stuff is exactly why we do this, and we don't want to stop learning just after we do our research for the week. So please, please, please let us know. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well said, Tom. Well, with that, I think we're going to close it out for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I've been Marty. And I've been Phil. Boosh. Boosh.